All right, hi everybody, it's Caleb with RPPR. Uh, I am here with Jason Painter, uh, the designer of Drunk Quest, the runaway uh, drinking card game, and uh, fantastic success of two Kickstarters now. Uh, what did 90 Proof C's end up clearing? 86. Oh, yeah, no, no small feat by any means. Um, so... Before the interview, just allow me to gush. Like, <laughs> regardless of what it says about me as a person, I love Drunk Quest and will play whenever I get the opportunity. Um, uh, not only because you know I enjoy a beer from time to time, but because I think it's a really well-designed game with fantastic art. So, thank you. That's an amazing compliment. Yeah. So, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to talk to you about it. So, could you just describe Drunk Quest for our listeners who missed out on the Kickstarter? Sure. Uh, Drunk Quest is a competitive drinking game um, where the object of the game is to get your friends obliterated while trying to remain as sober as possible. Okay. <laughs> That's an excellent description. So, uh, in getting friends to play it, who always unanimously love it, and then will play it with me from then on. But I, I, I usually encounter a little resistance. So, I thought I'd, I'd bring that up to you. So, uh, amongst my gamer friends, uh, they tend to think that in playing Drunk Quest, we are you know going to put on our frat colors and play high card, drink the beer, and then smash the empties against our head. Uh, when I argue that that is nothing that, like what Drunk Quest is. So how would, how would you uh, assure that the more gamer, Gen Con uh, attending people, that Drunk Quest is the game for them? Well, so um, the, myself uh, and all of our testers are pretty much hardcore gamers. So the things that we kind of built into it were <clears throat> a lot of the regular tropes of games like... Um, figuring out how to min-max certain things, uh, figuring out counters for counters. Mm -hmm. um, so if you really get into it and, and, and really understand the game, there's some depth and strategy there that you can um, kind of use to your advantage to, to defeat the other players. And, and especially with hardcore gamers, you know, the, the object of the game is to outsmart your friends and, and, and be better at explaining and understanding the rules any any card game, you know, that's, yeah. that's where the competition comes in. You put together a deck and, and magic, and you, you know, you want to be able to put your deck up against another player's deck and know that you've built the better deck. Mm -hmm. um, so we've built that kind of stuff into into Drunk Quest. Um, and when you throw alcohol in the mix, you know, that's just one more thing to be able to tout. Not <laughs> yeah. only was I able to outthink you during this game, but I was able to do it while drunk. <laughs> it's very true. Uh, one of the best sides. Um, so uh, on the reverse side, I have many uh, non-gamer friends who think that, you know, my weird hobby where I go pretend to be an elf for four hours, you know, every other week, uh, that in playing Drunk Quest, we're going to, like, do algebra and uh, put on costumes, and it's going to be really elaborate and not a very parking. So what would you uh, say to those customers? Well, the way I try to describe it for, for um, non-gamer types and try, yeah. Yeah, and try to get them into the game, as I say, you know, most drinking games that you play, you're going to flip a 52-card a deck, you're going to flip a card, it's going to say seven on it, and then you're going to take seven drinks. So it, it, it's a game of stamina, and it's not really a competition. Mm -hmm. um, and I, the way I try to get them into it is say, look, this is a competition. This is something that you're able to show your prowess in drinking <laughs> and, and being able to hold your liquor better than anybody else um, while getting your friends super trashed. So it's a, it's, a, it's a way to kind of bond with your friends. Um, and really, we took out it's addition and subtraction. We, we used yeah. to have cards in the beginning that were times two or, or half the drinks. Oh, yeah. And go figure people hate doing algebra when they're drunk. Oh, so second, second game. I couldn't handle that. that out, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, I think my favorite part of the game 
is that uh, in addition to the strategic card games, you, you are also playing against the people at the table that you know. Like, so for instance, my, my girlfriend is terribly reticent and doesn't like to talk about herself. So the second I get talker, I will plop that in front of her because I know she's going to forget to do it every time. Um, so I, I think it brings all the social aspects of, you know, like a circle of death, like frat game with all the good strategic aspects. Sure, yeah. And I mean, that was kind of the goal from the beginning is, you know, you get a lot of, a, a lot of gamers are kind of introverted and mm-hmm. they're really quiet spoken, you know, unless they're with their comfortable group. Um, and even then, you know, some friends you just have uh, that are more reserved than others, but you throw in the social lubricant that is alcohol into the mix, and two or three games later, you know, they're screaming, they're talking like a pirate, they're slamming down a squire card and sending their drink somebody else's way, you know, and it becomes, that alcohol lets them kind of open up a little bit more yeah. that out there, so. That's great. Um, so... Uh, we're talking about this. Uh, when does 90 Proof Seas uh, come out? Or? The official launch for 90 Proof Seas should on the be spot. in November, but <laughs> the copies are on their way now, and we're still we're kind of hoping to beat that release date by a month. So we're hoping that another four or five weeks you'll see it up on Amazon and up on our, our website. So um, once, what does 90 Proof Seas add, uh, if you had to generalize it, to, to the Drunk Quest game, the um, four-pack? We did an interesting mix for 90 Proof Seas. Um, I tried to give more of people what, what people liked, which was... Um, the chaoticness of it, you know, um, there's kind of instant frenzies sometimes where somebody will throw a, a, an instant down and then three or four will get stacked on top of that. And um, what I noticed in kind of the, the previous game, uh, the base game, is that people will get instant stacked on top of them. So they'll get a gold, two silver, five, five copper, whatever, and those will all be waiting for them. So yeah. we wanted those, that player to be able to avoid that frenzy mm-hmm. or kind of circumvent it. So we added stuff for that. Okay. Uh, and I also added some more strategy cards. Um, the Squire is kind of like the go-to card for a story. Every time I hear somebody who tells me something amazing that happened <laughs> during their game, it always starts with the Squire. A boss came down, <laughs> a guy got squired the drinks, and they, they re-squired somebody else, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so we added a knight card that should hopefully be a new squire. Uh, we also added a card called Boss Sauce. Uh, and what <laughs> Boss Sauce does is it turns any monster into a boss. Oh, okay. So if people stack 30 drinks on your monster, everybody's now it's everybody's problem. <laughs> so you can make every, it's like a, a squire on steroids type, yeah. type of thing. So a little bit more of everything. Yeah, I, I, the thing about Drunk Quest is I've never heard so many people curse with legitimate anger while having so much fun. Like, yeah. You will get a lot of communal moans once that drop, boss monster drops. For uh, sure. <laughs> uh, the other thing I thought was amazing is we put a... It, I mean, it's in the book that you can run from a monster if, yeah. if it gets too much. Yeah. I've never seen anybody run from a monster. <laughs> yeah. Even if it, they're like, oh my gosh, that's 80 drinks. Okay, I'll do it. You know, nobody ever is like, well, I'm just going to run away yeah. from this one. So it's, it's pretty impressive. All right. Uh, so I have bets going with other people the RPPR of how the idea for this came. Uh, so how, how, how did the idea, the inspiration for Drunk Quest uh, strike? So the, the game came about, we do a, a board game kind of every three weeks at the house, and we, we always drink while we play, yeah. um, whether it be Dominion or Munchkin mm-hmm. or Tabletop or wh- whatever we're doing, um, we're always drinking while we play. So it got me thinking, uh, I wonder if there's a drinking game that's an actual game, you know, that there's strategy yeah. involved in competition. Um, and there wasn't. So that's what set me about the task to do it. And it, the funny thing is, is when I started, I was kind of a lightweight, uh, <laughs> one or two beers, and I would be pretty yeah. good. Uh, and towards the end of the six-month cycle of development, I could polish off a six-pack and felt fine. I felt terrible morally 
Uh, during your biopic, I bet that's going to be a hell of a montage. <laughs> like yeah, while you're yeah. playtesting it, yeah, uh, just set it, cuts of beers, set it to best side. of the best or right. something. <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> All right. Uh, anything else about Drunk Quest you, you want us to know? Um, the expansion, 90 Proof, this year. Uh, yeah. Next year will be Wasted Lands, along with the uh, Spell Book, which is a drink recipe book that's kind of a companion to Drunk Quest. Oh, I cannot wait. That will be a lot of fun. Uh, all right. Well, this has been uh, Caleb and Jason Painter for RPPR. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll have more from Gen Con 2013 soon. Hi, it's Caleb here with RPPR, and I am here with Jason Pitt, author of Spark, uh, a new role-playing game that caught our eye here at Gen Con 2013, and I have not even cracked the cover yet. Uh, I've just read the back, so uh, I think it's best to have uh, Jason tell you about it himself. Jason, what is Spark all about? Well, um, in short, Spark is a game about uh, building worlds and challenging your beliefs within them. So it's a collaborative storytelling game, sort of in the vein of uh, Fate Core, or um, if anyone's played Burning Wheel, it it deals with some of the uh, challenging of beliefs and more emotional motivations of characters, uh, and the complicated social dynamics that are involved in that uh, game, Uh, and it's, it's a collaborative thing where I find some of the best pleasure with playing the game is just building worlds. Mm -hmm. Sit down with the group, and in an hour and a half, you've completely made a world full of political factions that are, and organizations scheming against each other, and people who represent them, um, all based on fundamental beliefs, subjective, declarative, and controversial statements that sort of drive and motivate the world and it's just fascinating (laughs) uh that sounds great so the the building the actual setting that's collaborative amongst everybody at the table correct yep absolutely uh is it a gm-less system it is a system with a gm okay but the distribution of authority sorry theory talk is (laughs) a little bit uh different from some of the others um in that it's the gm is portraying the setting and is portraying these main faces that represent these major factions. Um, conversely, the players are portraying their own individual characters, but the control over non-player characters is somewhat shared. Um, the each fra- each scene is created uh, through collaboratively. So the GM is probably is usually only doing one of the three things involved in creating a scene. So determining where it is when it takes place, so where it is, what's going on now that forces you to act, and what's the question you're trying to answer in the scene. Yeah. So it it's a lot more collaborative. Um, players even can control which agendas are successful, uh, and so which organizations are, are succeeding in their schemes and which are uh, not. So, yeah, it's a... It is, there is a GM role to guide and facilitate uh, and moderate the game and to help make it more fun for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and to provide adversity when need be and support when that would be better for the game. But obviously not D&D. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah not, a not lot less authority uh, or more distributed around the table. Yeah, yes. Uh, 
Well, even D and D, a lot of people don't realize has distributed authority mm-hmm. in some interesting ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for the old, for the people who remember the, all the old uh, games, uh, original D and D had uh, the mapper. And oh, the I remember that. Yeah. And actually, what you were doing is the players had to talk to the caller, and the caller would announce what was going on, and the GM would only listen to the caller. <laughs> nice. So it, which is a really interesting <laughs> turn on things. Yeah. So yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I took inspira- some inspiration from Fiasco and a number of other games of that ilk that have really shown the strength of what. what sorry, um, what GM authorities are good? At, which ones are cause certain effects, and what things can be shared for more fun for everyone? Honestly. Yeah. Um, so my understanding that the game is about collaborative building these worlds that have deeply held beliefs. Yes. And then throughout the scenario, uh, challenging those beliefs through the, to the player characters. Um, and from a narrative perspective, that sounds like a great source of conflict. But I think obviously your struggle must have been expressing that using some mechanical or organization system. So could you talk about that a little bit, uh, the process of doing that, and maybe how Spark works on that level? Um, well, fundamentally, everyone in the game, player and GM alike, each person has three beliefs. So the GM has their three setting beliefs, and the players have the three character beliefs. And the entire reward system is based around either having scenes where there's evidence that either proves and supports one of these beliefs or rejects them and Mm -hmm. proof against. So long as you're exploring it and dealing with it, you receive rewards in influence which help you win conflicts and win conflicts without the the natural consequences of victory. Yeah. Uh, So there's actually a tight economy in that every conflict you win, you have to either be harmed or spend influence that you only get and you only get that influence from challenging beliefs alright so it, it's a self-perpetuating cycle of examination of all these beliefs and trying to figure out how as many of them can clash at any time as possible <laughs> or work together at any time as possible cool um, now we build the setting collaboratively um, that's great, and I'm sure players will like that. But some people need a little bit more concrete things before they move in. So um, are there settings included all in the book as examples, or do you have any example settings that were built uh, in particularly good game sessions? Uh, yes, uh, we have three settings in the uh, base book, and we, uh, a couple more that are in the works uh, from various sources. Uh, the first one is Neo Nihon, Shogunate Science Fiction, okay. which I kind of plug as... Uh, what would happen if Firefly was a little less magnificent seven and a bit more seven samurai? Oh, okay. Um, That's cool. So it's uh, a Japanese colonization ship landing on this hostile planet, who, which is um, not quite as idyllic as the initial survey said. So aliens, um, genetically engineered uh, peasants, uh, <laughs> and Shinto androids. Uh, lots of fun. Um, the second one is actually uh, the most serious and the hardest to write. Um, Quiet Revolution, which is a Montreal police drama. Okay. Which is... It's a much more personal, smaller scale 
uh, game about dealing with culture clashes and social issues and the personal problems that and challenges of living in a cosmopolitan city full of power and corruption and culture and yeah. yeah. Also, it's my mandatory Canadian content. So, um, <laughs> mandatory Canadian content achieved. All right. Yes, excellent. Uh, and the third one is, uh, I wanted to give people a template on what fantasy would look like for the classic D and D crowd. Um, so I built uh, something called uh, King um, Kingdom of the Elements, I think, or Elemental Elemental Kingdom. Sorry, I've changed the name of this a couple times. <laughs> uh, fantasy under siege. Oh, okay. Think of Lord of the Rings, except it's set in the Balkans. Okay. And all of the uh, all of the other races are horrible elemental monsters trying to destroy humanity in some way. All right. The dwarves are herding mountains to crush uh, the human <laughs> kingdom. The elves are very fey and offer promises that, well, if you place your uh, a rock right here on the road, I will give you a bag of gold. Yeah. And then that rock kills kills the horse that was carrying the pharmacist, uh, carrying the doctor who is going to tend to the prince, which <laughs> means that the other one rises to ascension who launches a war with that next kingdom over. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And then Snatchers, which are effectively Schmeagel from Lord of the Rings. Just an entire race of people corrupted to doing into that. <laughs> so the... Um, and Lava Blooded Orcs. So some of the deeply held beliefs would be, you know, fanatical fantasy racism. I, I uh, yes. Like yeah. Stupid dwarves with their mountains. Uh, yeah. Get off my lawn. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and how outsiders are. Mm-hmm. And it's effectively... Uh, yeah, it's a... It, it's a fun little twist on the classic uh, D and D, but it's it's comfortable to jump right into. Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. Uh, it certainly sounds very versatile. So, uh, it's my understanding that Spark premiered this like ten o'clock yesterday at, at Gen Con. Yes. Um, after a successful Kickstarter, uh, which I launched this spring, um, I sent it out to my backers first. I was happy to be able to do that, yeah. um, and this. The first public launch outside of that, and outside of the uh, a few of my supporting retailers, um, the first public launch uh, was today at Gen Con at 10 a.m. Cool. But uh, yesterday at Gen Con. Yesterday, at 10 yesterday, yeah. It's sleep is overrated at Gen Con. Yeah, All the yeah. days kind of blur together. Uh, so I know it's a little early. What with that premiere, are you working on anything else currently? I have a number of other uh, projects. I'm trying to. Too early to talk about. A little bit of a break, yeah. Which means I'm only working on a couple small projects and supporting a friend, uh, a larger project by uh, a couple friends of mine. Um, One of mine is based on um, my game chef entry uh, for this year, which was uh, called titled "Post Human Doorways." Which is a game about transhumanity nice. and exploring what it means to move past the human condition and what are, what do you lose in the process? And are you? Yeah. So that's one of my next little projects in the queue, along with a bunch of other settings and the like. Well, I'm sure we all need some time to process Spark anyway, and yeah. we, we look forward to what's next. So, uh, if that's all? Oh, yeah, uh, if people have any questions, feel free to uh, 
Oh yeah, where can they go to find it online? Yeah. Uh, yes, um, you can find me, more information about the game, links if you want to desperately get a uh, copy of it, uh, over at www.genesisoflegend.com. All right. Uh, and it's also on IPR uh, soon and on uh, Drive Through RPG. All right, sweet. Uh, we will look forward to that. So thanks, Jason. Thank you very uh, much. This has been Kayla for RPR, Gen Con 2013. We'll be back with more interviews. So have a good one. All right, hi, this is Caleb with RPPR, and I am here with uh, Dennis Detweiler, uh, and we are talking about his latest book, Sense of the Sleight of Hand Man, did I, I said it correctly, yeah. uh, and a uh, new Cthulhu campaign, and uh, we just want to hear about it. So, Dennis, what's it all about? Okay, um, it's a 1920s horrific Dreamlands Lovecraftian mishmash where you <laughs> kind of swept on a drug, uh, swelled tide into the awful dreamlands, which are filled with kind of horrific monsters and creatures that haunt the edges of human consciousness. It's a much darker take on Lovecraft's dreamlands than any of the standard books. Um, and it's full of really awful, terrifying things, which is why I like it so much. Uh, and I wrote and illustrated it. And it was originally going to be about 128 pages. It turned out to be 294 pages. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So thank goodness that's done. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's available now. So check it out on RPG Now or ArcTree.com. Sweet. Uh, now, it is set in the Lovecraftian dreamland. So um, I noticed that not a lot of Cthulhu material, the overwhelming majority of Cthulhu material, is not set there. Yep. Or it avoids that at all costs. So yep. was that something you sought to remedy with yes. uh, Sense of Sleight of Hand? Yeah, you know, it's in Delta Green, we set about correcting what we saw as a deficiency in Call of Cthulhu, which yeah. was. You know, we felt the modern day didn't really, Cthulhu now specifically didn't reflect what we hoped modern Cthulhu would be about. Mm -hmm. So we fixed it. Um, And this is a very similar thing. I enjoyed the Dreamlands book from Chaosium, but I felt it was missing a lot of the point. That the Dreamlands are, in the stories, are almost scarier than the real world. um, And they can be more horrific and more terrifying. So we have, you know, wonderful, you know, horrible visions of 30-foot monsters with vertical slits from mouths and <laughs> eating corpses and uh, ghouls leading you off into the dark on a sea of your bones and, you know, a horrible dreamlike imagery that will haunt you indefinitely, hopefully. Yeah, I've seen a lot of the artwork uh, on your site, correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's going to be in the book if you want a little preview out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it is nightmare fuel, oh, so good, good job with that. Yeah. <laughs> My goal is to upset people. <laughs> So you said it's a 1920s campaign. So how does the 1920s influence it when you're in a crazy archetypal landscape of moon beasts? You kind of move back and forth uh, at certain points. Uh, And the whole goal is to escape the horrible human-fueled dreamland, (laughs) mind-meld crap that you're trapped in. You want to get back to the comfortable, happy, drug-fueled mid-1920s in New York. Um, Yeah. And uh, exact your revenge on whoever flung you into that horrible world. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it sets the tone very early on. The game is, I don't want to ruin too much, but the game is, uh, begins in 1925 New York and ends with the possibility of hooking up to my favorite campaign of all time, Masks of Meryl Thotep. Nice. Uh, so you, your main adversary in the dreamlands like all true earthly dreamers is the the dark pharaoh um you get to tangle with him and maybe win nice um 
then you're just kind of thrust into the whole Jackson Elias uh, Mastin Neurothotep adventure. So it's a nice bridge to that. Um, so. I've met like I've met like four game designers here like this week that are currently running Massive Neurothotep, yes. which is just bananas when you think about it for something yes. written in the early 80s yes. to it, still be people playing through it that it, at it is the singular yeah. definitive product to measure all products <laughs> the original mask not so much the companion um, when Larry wrote the 500 page yeah, compa- La- which is impressive in its own way. yeah Larry Larry's stuff the original stuff was just so fantastically ahead of its time and beautiful yeah. It, it was the first scenario I recall reading where it was just kind of like, here are the things that might happen. Here are the active characters. Here's the location. Go. <laughs> it was like a play set. Yeah. Um, and every other scenario before that was like, read the following to the players. Yeah, you very. Enter a dark cave, and there's a 30 by 30, you know, and it was just kind of boring. Um, but Larry was kind of like, you're all adults. Let's <laughs> jump around the globe and hunt horrible tentacular monstrosities. Um, and Larry, Larry's a fantastic guy who went on to do really odd things like write He-Man <laughs> television and, you know, like episodes of, like, Miami Vice and, you know, Magnum P.I. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, those are the ones where, the, you know, they find Shuggles. Yeah, in yeah, Miami. you know, uh, started to combine the two. Actually, you can <laughs> see some of it in He-Man. <laughs> oh, okay, that's cool. Which is strange. Um, so you, would you say uh, Sense is more, say, survival horror oriented than, say, investigative? You know, it's, get it's, out, get out, get out now. It's more Lynchian. Lynchian, Kubrick, okay. All right. Horror, uh, with a fantasy tinge. Um, but it's, it's certainly not a happy situation. There's a, uh, for example, they crawl to the ends of the dreamlands of Earth in one sequence and wander there because they're earthly dreamers. They can actually enter mechanical works that seems to run that portion of the world called the, the Western Machine. And uh, uh, an automaton-like entity called the Oracle comes in and it answers questions with a mechanical billow when they ask it things. And it's just not happy at all. It's, yeah. it's there to kind of make you think about what's going on. And the players, I've run it four times now, and they've always come out of that very upset. Um, I find this in general from a metagame perspective. Anytime you find an oracle thing willing yeah. to answer your questions, it's best to like drop a grenade and run in the yeah, other direction. Yeah, it's not a happy situation. <laughs> so, yeah, so we've had fun playing it. All right, cool. Uh, well, uh, we're all really excited. We're definitely going to do a playthrough at RPPR. Oh, cool. Um, I wish I could read it, but Ross has threatened me <laughs> with death if I uh, spoil myself on it. So. I will read it one day in theory. So, oh, good. Um, all right. Uh, anything else about Sense or Art Dream? No, go out and get it. Uh, there, that's enough. <laughs> all right. Uh, this has been Kayla for RPR, Gen Con 2013. Bye. Hey, this is Caleb from RPPR. I am here with. Uh, it's Mark, right? Mark Diaz. Yeah, Mark Diaz, uh, And he is part of the Independent Game Developers Network. And he's the author of The Plays Thing and uh, Our Last Best Hope, two games that we're hoping to play over at RPPR soon. Um, and while I bought a copy of one, I have had not had time to crack the cover. So why don't you tell us what uh, Our Last Best Hope is about? Sure, great. So Our Last Best Hope is a game in which you play a crew of people that are trying to save humanity from a terrible crisis. So you might think of a, a 
movie like Armageddon or um, Sunshine, as, yeah. as if, you've, if you've seen something slightly more obscure, <laughs> uh, where we've got a team of people who are trying to like uh, blow up a meteor or restart the sun or drill to the center of the earth or, I don't know, beat up on some kaiju, <laughs> right, to make sure that humanity has a future, right? And um, a, a lot of this game came out of my, my want to have a role-playing game that was really about hope. Right, there was really about like people who were excellent and amazing and really wanted to save the world and who were able to maybe, if they got lucky, be in the right place at the right time to actually do that. Yeah. Um, and so the whole, all the mechanics of the game are built around coming up with a setting on the spot, coming up with the kind of crisis you want to face as players, um, and then like knocking it out of the park as as uh, the scientists, engineers, doctors, and soldiers <laughs> who go out there and like save humanity. All right, uh, so the crisis and the setting, are those collaboratively generated? Yeah, yeah. There's a couple ways you can do the game. One is just to freeform it and say, okay, we're going to have a crisis. Uh, I like kaiju. Let's do kaiju. Kaiju are the crisis. Um, We also have a number of missions that are available both in the core book. There's three missions in the core book and in the expansion book that we just released at Gen Con this year um, that uh, allow you to randomly generate a setting relatively quickly. So you roll some dice and say, oh, in this game the crisis is that the center of the Earth is is turning into a nuclear bomb because the, the <laughs> magnetic right. fields are changing so that uh, all the plutonium is what? going to the center. Now, as you might notice, science is not such a... We're not super worried about uh, the science being accurate. If here. Hollywood doesn't have to do it, neither do we. Exactly, right, exactly. Uh, it's sort of like science as hero, right, is really yeah. what we're trying to emphasize. It's like whatever problems that might be out there, scientists can solve them and crack them and fix them. Um, so we don't worry too much about ex- the exact details of how the science actually works. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so uh, that's last best hope. Uh, what about Plays the Thing? This is the first game you wrote? Yeah, we wrote the first game called The Plays the Thing. Uh, we did a Kickstarter for that in late 2011, and it came out like right at the beginning of last year. Really, for me, it feels like it was done more than more than a year ago because yeah. the whole publishing process. But um, uh, The Plays the Thing is about a group of Shakespearean actors who want to change the roles they've been given. So you play, um, say, like the actress playing Ophelia or the actor playing Hamlet, and during the play, while you're rehearsing it, you try to change it. So you're like, hey, I don't really think Ophelia should die here. And you make <laughs> roles against the director, against the game master, to try to change the change the story while it's happening. Um, and we complicate it in other ways, too. Like, you know, we, we let players throw in new things like saying, oh, Macbeth is actually a fairy. He's actually like a fairy changeling. See, and he got replaced by this other guy. And and so that's why he wants to overthrow King Duncan. And and so it's a really great game for Shakespeare fans. Um, But if you're not a fan, we also included um, some play sets that break down really quickly what the play is about, give you each scene in the play, act by act, that you can play out with your play group, and then summarize each character so you can pick from the characters that are there. So even if you don't know The Tempest that well, we've already broken it down for you. All right, cool. Um, so what are you working on now, Mark? Uh, Man. <laughs> so first, I've been working on a game for a long time, which is ironically called Eternity. Uh, <laughs> so, so pro tip number one for you game designers out there, don't name a game Eternity, because it's just going to take forever. Um, but uh, Eternity is a game about uh, the vast, a group of like godlike beings who exert their will over the cosmos, right? And um, they uh, they have this pantheon around them of uh, mortals like 
priests and followers and sons and uh, monsters and things that they've made. And uh, in the game, you play both the vast and also the pantheon, the other things around you, and other people's pantheons as well. Oh. And it's a story about uh, sort of like an epic scale, like the Iliad or the Bible or the Bhagavad Gita. Like we're talking about centuries of play that your your characters will go through. Um, it's a very collaborative game, but it's one in which you uh, you can do anything you want. It's GMless um, as long as another god doesn't oppose you. So if you want to raise a guy from the dead, great, he's raised. Unless there's another god that wants him to stay dead, in which case you'll have to have a contest to figure it out. Um, but it's a game about sort of how what we create undoes us because the, your real enemies are not, of course, the other gods. Yeah. They're your children mm-hmm. and your followers and your monsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, the things you create in the world will come back to you. So uh, it's a game I've been working on for a long time because I really want to get it perfect. It's a big game. Uh, both the plays, the thing, and our last best hope they play out over a single session. Like, mm-hmm. you, you play for two, three, four hours and it's done. Eternity literally can be played forever. It oh, so yeah, you can have, like, a campaign. Yeah, you have a huge campaign because each god uh, has an at- a series of attachments. They don't have any stats. Like, what's the stat for strength for a god? That yeah. Sense. Uh, they have attachment instead. Like, they're attached to death or attached to nature or attached to vengeance. An avatar. Like, or an avatar, right. And this measures their strength in that thing but also defines who they are. So, you know, Zeus is a god of the elements. How do we know? Because that's his strength. He's not really much a god of death, but if Zeus was to continually kill things, he would eventually become a god of death. Okay. And when that attachment grows too great, the gods themselves are unmade. A little bit like Doctor Who, where he like unravels and becomes a new person. Yeah. That happens then. It goes through this process of unraveling. So if you don't say true enough to your nature. Yep. Yeah. All right. And so your character sheet is wiped. You make the Mm. same character, but now with a new set of attachments and new set of uh, monsters and children. Children, right, and so you can continue playing. You can't die, you're a god, yeah. But you become that unmaking is like the vast worst nightmare. Because imagine, like, okay, Caleb, you're you, mm-hmm. you're gonna be you forever. But next week, everything you care about, all your memories, all that stuff, that's gonna be gone. Yeah, I mean, if you're not of your nature, then you are no longer you. Exactly yeah. right. So you can't die, but yeah. unraveling is worse than death. <laughs> so, cool. so anyway, you can play this game for a long time with a big group, right? And and I want to make sure that the rules for that and the support for that is really strong. I think a lot of games, especially indie games that are long-term play, um, sometimes don't always have the best support, like when you go into the future and play for many, many, many sessions. Because, yeah. Um, there's a lot of indie games that really prioritize the, and you know, I'd say Our Last Best Hope is one of them. Don't really let's prioritize. play right now. Let's play it right now. And the downside of let's play it right now is you can't play five sessions of our last best hope. Yeah. Because what like the fifth time you're like, it's another kaiju. Right? It's, not, it's not exciting, right? <laughs> the whole support is built for the right now. So yeah. I want to make sure Eternity is really built for the long haul. But if you're interested, you can download the the core rules. The rules you need to play scene by scene are actually available for free on our website right oh, now. Oh, okay. Because I understand you're still in playtesting. Absolutely, yeah. So if you go to magpiegames.com backslash eternity, you'll find uh, all the rules that are available for the game for free. Uh, and some setting information enough to get started. And we'd love to hear from you if you get a chance to play. All right, cool. Uh, we'll definitely look into that. So uh, anything else for our listeners before we... Yeah, so I'm also working on the Firefly RPG, which was released, ah, yes. yeah, released this year. Yeah, so I'm the lead systems guy for Firefly, um, and I stepped in to fill Cam Banks's very big shoes. He's the guy who designed Marvel <laughs> and Leverage and Smallville, along with a team of other people, Dave Chalker, Phil Nard, you know, other other folks. Um, and uh, and I stepped in to kind of finalize the exclusive, which was the first uh, release for from Margaret Weiss Productions for Firefly. But I'll be working on the core book for February, which will include the long-term advancement rules and exactly some of the stuff we were just talking about for yeah. Eternity. How do you play a whole season worth of Firefly episodes? So yeah. the exclusive is available now, but 
we'd like you to check out the core book in February as well. I'm sure our listeners will eat that up. Uh, awesome, there's they're still hoping it comes back, even if Nathan Fillion's <laughs> got to use a walker. Um, so yeah, well played. Uh, well, this is Caleb from RPPR. Uh, it's been great having you, and uh, we'll get back with more interviews at Gen Con 2013 very soon. Thanks.